0: All right, back on Young Turks, Uh, I wanna read some member comments for you guys, and, uh, and some that are clarifying to what we just discussed. Cognosco This writes in, no one has yet claimed responsibility for the rocket attack near Tel Aviv. Earlier Monday, a senior Hamas official told CNN, the militant group was not currently interested in firing rockets into Israel and did not want to risk a conflict with Israel at this time. Though the official did not directly deny that Hamas was behind the rocket attack. So take that for what it's worth, but it is an interesting note, okay? Allen makes a great point. In America today, there are two parties, not Democrats and Republicans, corporatists and populists. That's true. The populists are deeply divided between the right and the left, but the corporatists are largely united within the Democratic and Republican Party, and unfortunately, they're the overwhelming majority in Washington, but not in the country. DM Thomas 1982 says, in very, very small fairness to Mike Pompeo, predicting what Trump will do or say is damn near impossible. That certainly is also true. And last one is from Smooth, writing in, the blue and white coalition is polling strong against Likud in the upcoming elections. The Trump move boost Netanyahu, that alone could be a reason. So that's your context for the story we did on Israel. Now, let's bring on our first guest. Joining me now is Mariam Jamil. She's an environment and a labor reporter for the Center for Public Integrity. Mariam, welcome to the Young Turks.
1: Thank you very much.
0: All right, no problem. Let's talk about the EEOC. So, for folks who don't know, what does it do and is it going to be bolstered or cut in next year's budget?
1: So, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission is the agency that is responsible for helping U.S. workers discrimination complaints. So this is an issue that more than 80,000 workers complain of each year, and many of these workers go through just anguishing situations. They are fired, they believe, on the basis of their sex, of their race, of their disability, and other protected statuses. Sometimes they're demoted or not offered various types of opportunities in work. Um, So there is a federal agency called the EEOC that is exists to help workers with these claims. Um, Next year, we'll see what happens when Congress decides. But for now, President Trump has proposed uh, in his 2020 budget a cut of about 6%. And so that's quite significant for a small agency that already for years hasn't seen much growth in its budget as the workforce has grown and as its responsibilities have grown. There hasn't been a presidential proposed budget this low since 2009. Um, And actually, this agency's budget was higher in 1980 if you adjust for inflation.
0: Yeah, that's a startling fact. Uh, There's also 42% less staff today than there was in 1980 in the commission. And uh, and meanwhile, the labor force has increased by a startling 50% to 160 million people. So they have almost half the staff to deal with twice the amount of workers. Uh, So that might lead uh, people to conclude, Mariam, that well, apparently equal opportunity is solved in America, Uh, that it's not a real issue anymore in, in the workforce. That's why they're powering down. Is that really the case?
1: that's sadly really not the case quite the opposite um, these charges are not dwindling at all and if you talk with workers about their experiences it seems as though people are having less and less opportunity to get help um, and and many employers just don't have the pressure to change their behavior um, clearly the federal work the, the federal agency that's charged with aiding with this issue ha- doesn't have the the manpower to actually be um, a real threat to most employers. While they do accomplish quite a bit on the cases they can get to, um, chances are if you file a discrimination complaint against your employer, that employer is not really going to have to face consequences. Um, And if you look at the courts and what happens to cases that workers file there, um, there's similarly a very strong disadvantage for employees who want help dealing with this issue. So it's Alive and well, the problem of discrimination in the U.S. and in our um, companies and employers, it's just not getting the, the help and um, nutrition that, that, they, that it needs to, to end. Right. So
0: why do you think uh, workers have a harder time uh, proving these cases against corporations?
1: Well, one thing is that the law is set up in a way that makes it very difficult. So you need to basically prove that your employer intended to discriminate against you. Um, in our story, we chose to focus on race because those were those are the complaints that come in the most, and they also have the the lowest chance of success. So um, race discrimination makes up the the highest portion of EEOC complaints. Um, but today, uh, most Most people are not going to say, you know, I fired you because you're black or I didn't promote you because you're Latina. Um, They are going to discriminate in much more subtle ways. But the law, courts, the EEOC that doesn't have a lot of time to really investigate your case um, is seeking really a a much clearer pronounced intention of discrimination. So people who do have those experiences where somebody is blatantly um, saying, racist things to them. Um, Those cases, while they don't go smoothly and quickly, those cases, unfortunately, they have a better chance of success because the law is looking for that kind of information.
0: Yeah, and and sometimes there's uh, hurdles that are put in there legally too. Uh, It might be arbitration as opposed to being able to pursue a lawsuit, uh, etc. And so corporations are gonna look out for themselves. The government is supposed to look out for us. And so if they're powering down on the one place that would look out for workers, that's, of course, deeply problematic. Now, you mentioned some cases that are pretty clear. I would argue the UPS case is one of those. Uh, for people who haven't heard of it, uh, uh, can you talk about that, Mariam?
1: Yeah, so in there have actually been many cases against UPS. UPS is one of the U.S.'s largest employers. Um, there was a filed earlier this month. Um, by 19 black workers in Ohio who alleged experiencing just really overt racism. So like nooses hanging above their work areas and all kinds of uh, just slurs used, like jokes made that were just clearly meant to be derogatory. Um, And on top of that, uh, people are claiming they were denied promotions and work opportunities. And these are employees who have been there for like 20 years. So that's a very recent case in our story, um, I talked to many UPS workers in a variety of states, um, and, and these are cases that are ongoing. Some have been settled. So, so I talked to uh, a worker who filed a lawsuit in 2017, and he's still, you know, waiting for that to conclude. Um, but he experienced similar behavior to what the the recent lawsuit is claiming in Ohio. Uh, um, another important thing to highlight is they take such a toll on people both um, in their finances obviously because it is their their access to to work and their their access to sometimes like higher pay or just a better position um, but it really takes a toll on people mentally and emotionally people take years to to really work through the the damage that's done to them on a psychological level and that can lead to physical health effects as well
0: so uh, in that Uh, Ohio case, not only were the nooses hung, uh, the the African-American workers were referred to as the N-word many times. uh, And there was a monkey doll dressed as a UPS employee and then put near uh, one of the African-American workers. Now, uh, the defense is, we were just kidding or joking. Well, uh, apparently that's not how it was received. Uh, Number one, not a good joke to begin with, not anywhere near uh, close uh, on that count. Number two, if it was such a good joke among buddies, why are they suing? Uh, Yeah, go ahead.
1: No, it's true. And it's it's been quite one of the most astounding things in reporting on this has been seeing the legal defenses that people will put up when they are fighting these lawsuits. So um, like the imagery you just showed was from another case we reported on and featured um out of Alabama. But again, similar to the UPS workers um, you know, slurs, imagery of hanging, et cetera. Um, but yeah, a lot of the time employers will say, and these are valid legal defenses, um, That this was something that was um, uh, just a a random comment. It was a stray comment, is the the terminology that they use. It had nothing to do with our treatment of this employee. So basically, like we didn't we didn't demote or fire or not promote this person um, be in connection to like this slur that you know one of our employees said. That was just a stray comment. Um, You have to prove that. A reasonable person in your position um, would have considered this to be offensive. You have to prove many, many different things when you file these lawsuits if you want to even just make it to trial, um, and, and so the burden is quite high. Um, seeing yeah. the the types of things that judges basically acknowledged may have happened, the types of racist treatment that people experience at work. Um, And then that the judges went on to say, like you know, while we don't really condone this, this just wasn't enough to break the law, uh, has been astounding.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, with corporate power, what it is, it's not as astounding as I wish it was. Uh, I'll leave on this note to give you guys a sense. This is not 100 years ago. This is not 50 or 20 years ago. In September of 2016, in a different UPS case, a white driver said that she did not want to deliver to Enville, uh, but of course she said the whole thing, uh, or to N-City. Um, and so that's today, that's in America. And, and now the government is going to fund protection of those people even less, if Trump has, gets his way. All right, Mariam Jamil, uh, writing about this at the Center for Public Integrity. Thank you so much for joining us, really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, when we return, Bill Shear from Politico to defend his interesting slash outrageous argument. Uh, that uh, big donors uh, are what we should pay attention to, not small donors. But if I'm mischaracterizing him, he'll be on after the break to tell us. All right, back on Young Turks, let's get right into it. Joining me now, Bill Scherr, he is contributing editor at Politico, wrote an article called The Democrats Donor Measuring Contest. Uh, We talked about that article on air, Uh, and uh, I was not a fan of it to say the least. Bill's on here to respond. Bill welcome to the program. Great to be with you, Jake. All right, good to be with you. It's been a long time. <laughs> so That is true. That's right. Uh, all right, Bill, you heard what we said about uh, the article. Uh, so let's start with uh, premise number one. Uh, you seem to say that a small number of donors is not necessarily indicative of the country when you're talking about the power of small dollar donations, which I am very much in favor of. Uh, progressives overall are very much in favor of. Uh, okay, fair, they don't represent the whole country. Everybody gets that but they certainly represent a lot more of the country than the big dollar donors that you seem to be advocating for. Isn't that logical?
2: Well, no, I think you mischaracterized that part of the piece. The argument right. in my article is not big donors are better than small donors. If I'm a candidate and I had a choice between one donor giving me a million dollars and a million people giving me a dollar each, I'll take the million people because they're gonna not just give me my money, they're gonna be enthusiastic, they're going to knock on doors, they're going to recruit their neighbors and so forth. So it's not that there shouldn't be small donors or a small donor strategy. Uh, The problem now is that it's been idealized so much that the only good dollar is a small donor dollar and any big donor dollar is inherently toxic and corrupting. If you look at it in that way, you're hamstringing yourself Uh, In a general election, number one, Uh, and in the primary, I mean, right now, a candidate like Elizabeth Warren, who is trying to live up to the ideal of small donors only, uh, she is getting sidelined by both Bernie Sanders and Beto O'Rourke because they came into the contest with a built-in small donor army that all the other candidates don't have, and you would. Those folks who need to get some oxygen to get into in, get into the mix, if they can't start with some seed money, which is likely to, gonna come from bigger, wealthier donors, they might not get any option for the entire race and get shut out. I think that is a, an unfair and unideal situation for the Democratic Party.
0: So, Bill, there's so much to unpack there. Let's. Uh, I'm gonna save the whether big donors have any merit. It to a discussion in a second, okay? But let's address two other things. You said Elizabeth Warren puts herself at a disadvantage by saying we should concentrate on small donors. Another way to look at that is to say that she's a person of principle, that she does that even though she clearly knows that Bernie Sanders and Beto O'Rourke are going to be able to raise more money from small donors, but she believes it's the right thing to do and that you should give her a ton of credit for doing that.
2: Well, here's the Rika with Warren because she said she is not gonna do big uh, donor events. She's not gonna do one-on-one meetings with big donors uh, in the primary. Mm. She has said that is only for the primary, and she's left the door open doing that in the general. Well, if big donors, if that money is inherently toxic, who cares when in the process it comes in? It's just as corrupting in October 2020 as it is in March of 2019. She is signaling that she knows you can't compete. I mean, Trump might well have a billion dollars. I mean he he mm-hmm. he had less money than Hillary in 2016. It might be a different story in 2020. Uh and you're not gonna get you're not gonna match that level of money on small donors alone. Priorities USA, the Democratic Super PAC, they're gonna be in the mix most likely. Uh, and I don't think the Democratic candidate is gonna say, uh, go home, don't give to that Super PAC. Uh, so if it's, it's toxic, really it's toxic. If it's not, it's not. Warren is telling you, she knows at the other day it really is not inherently toxic. Her agenda would still be her agenda, even if that money came in down the line.
0: Yeah. So look, she came on the show and talked about that. I asked, the first question I asked was about that. Are you going to take in the general election? And she said she would. And I disagree with that. And I think our audience, unfortunately, also disagreed with that. And I cautioned everybody, you should still give Elizabeth Warren a ton of credit for being principled during the primary when she knows it is to her disadvantage. You should give her enormous credit for that. Now, having said that, I think that if another candidate like Bernie Sanders wins, Yeah, there's an excellent chance that he does not take the big donor money, and that that would be a much better way to go. What you guys are discounting, and part of what was the reason for Donald Trump winning was that in a presidential election, there is literally billions of dollars in free media coverage that swamps the paid media advantage that theoretically big donors can bring. So that's another issue. But look, before we get away from this topic, Bill, I don't wanna mischaracterize what you're saying, so I wanna be clear on what you're saying. Are you saying the big donors are better than the small donors or that they are equal or that the small donors are in fact better, but
2: we shouldn't discount big donors? I don't don't think it should be treated like a zero sum game. It shouldn't be a contest between who has the best kind of donor. Uh, You wanna have, the Democratic Party, you're going back to Woodrow Wilson, uh, has always been funded by a mix of small donors and big donors. Uh, and you wanna have a candidate at the end of the day that you have enough trust in that they're not going to be influenced by wh- where the money came from. They're gonna try to deliver the best possible policy. Teddy Roosevelt, he wasn't a Democrat, but he was a progressive. You know, he had a slush fund when he ran 1904 that he, that he lied about and it included money from Standard Oil. They get 100 grand from Standard Oil. But when he was president, he still tried to bust up Standard Oil. And one of his donors said, "You know, we tried to buy the son of the bitch, and he wouldn't have stay. He wouldn't stay bought." Yeah. Uh, he had the integrity to say, "I don't care where the money came from. I'm going to look at the policies and what's best for the country."
0: Yeah, uh, Bill, and, and, Bill, sorry, go on, go on. Yeah, you're you're quoting the exception there that I believe pretty much proves the rule. So let's get to the heart of the issue here. I mean, you, uh, I don't agree with you. I think small donors are infinitely better than big donors, Uh, and I think that the big donors definitely want something in return. Is it true for every big donor? No. I know some uh, big donors that are wonderful people and they really do do it out of the goodness of their heart because they don't want the planet to melt, etc. And it's they're just thinking long term, etc. So not every big donor is a bad guy, of course not. But in overall, do a lot of the big donors want something in return? The answer to the rest of the country is obvious, Bill, yes, they want a return
2: on investment. Sure, I, I'm not disputing that a lot of big donors have an angle, uh, but when you when a big donor gives money to a candidate, it's not a contract, it's not a bribe. It You're is a bribe, it is a bribe, it is they a may bribe. Wa- they may It's want a
0: legalized it to be. bribe, no question about <laughs> it. Over 90% of Americans believe that, Bill. You're living in fantasy I, land I, in Washington I, watching, if you think I'm it's not sure a bribe.
2: Believe that. I know people believe that, FDR had a quarter of his money in 1932 come from Wall Street, a quarter of it, yet he still created the SEC. Barack Obama had more Wall Street money than John McCain, still did Dodd-Frank.
0: Yeah, Barack Obama Barack Obama Dodd- had Frank, his attorney general go out and say that the, the, yeah, that yeah, the yeah, bankers I were know, too big know, to jail. I know, I know. Barack jail. Obama's Dodd-Frank reform was pathetic.
2: Well, uh, so and, and you Wall go back to Street 1932 Street for Street, FDR, are you kidding me, so that was not Dodd- the current Frank. system. Wall Street said, we are so mad at Dodd-Frank, we're gonna shift our money to Mitt Romney. They didn't say thank you, Barack Obama. Yeah, of course, they want everything. Well, exactly, and they didn't get it. Barack Obama made decisions uh, based on what he thought was best, and it didn't matter where the money came from.
0: No, Bill. A banking executive at Citigroup handed Barack Obama a list of the people who should be in his cabinet. He put everyone on that list except one person on his cabinet. So the bankers gave him money because they thought he was gonna represent represent them better than John McCain. You think Goldman Sachs is giving money to Barack Obama or to anyone else for their health or for charity?
2: You don't believe that, Bill, do you? They wanted something out of it. And when they didn't get what they wanted in Dodd-Frank, they left. But Barack Obama so made his is decisions based system. on what he thought was right, so Bill, not based on where the money came so from. So
0: Bill, based on what you're saying, you're saying, well, I'm hoping against hope that some Democrats have enough principle that they will be able to get past the bribe. But of course it's a bribe. Goldman Sachs is looking for a return with, on investment. People, they must they're, by they're law pl- look for a, lo- a return
2: on investment. There are plenty big donors that want something for return. They're plenty of big donors that play both sides of the fence. The Democratic Party has almost always been funded by both small and large, and that's, and, they, and 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 political pressure comes from both small and large, and the and the best can the best presidents manage that and do the right thing anyway. So if Bernie Sanders is the nominee, if Bernie Sanders is the nominee, I agree with you. He'll probably not do what Warren said, but. You know, Let's say, for example, Priorities USA still exists. Even though Bernie Sanders says, I don't want you to give to Priorities USA. They're, they're the big Durkheim Priorities Super PAC. But people give to Priorities USA anyway, and they help Bernie get elected. Is Bernie gonna change his policies because of that? Do you think Elizabeth Warren's gonna change her policies if she encourages Super PAC giving? She has been Bill, fighting for the middle class the real. her whole life. You have trusted her that she's gonna stick with that regardless where the money comes from. So Bill, you're
0: talking about the the progressives that we back. The reason we back them is because we not only believe but we are backed up by facts of decades of those two people delivering on those promises. I'm not worried about them, I'm worried about everyone else. So do I believe the rest of the people in the race will be greatly impacted by the millions of dollars that their big donors are giving them? Yes, I'm definitely worried about that. And yes, I think they will bend to the corporate donors will. Do you not think that? You think that all of them are angels and the millions of dollars they're gonna get, they're gonna be like, oh, I don't care about that. Oh, Hey, I'm not gonna run for re-election. It's not like I'm gonna want that
2: money again. Really, Bill? I would judge a candidate. Based on the entirety of their records, I would not judge a candidate strictly based on where the money is coming from. If you think, you know, I don't trust Kamala Harris because Kamala Harris because of her prosecutorial record in San Francisco. I don't trust Kirsten Gillibrand because of her record as a House member in upstate New York. Uh, I don't trust Beto O'Rourke because he was for Social Security cuts back in 2012. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why you might not trust somebody. Uh, and all I'm saying is if. You're, like, like Take take Beto, for example, there's a there's reason for people on the left to not trust him based on certain positions he has taken over time. But he got a lot of small donor money in his first aid, does that negate the rest of his record? I no. wouldn't think so, you wanna change so, the entirety of it.
0: So Bill, uh, we're, we're out of time, so I, we got. Uh, let me wrap up on a, a couple of things here as quickly as we can. So Beto's a good example. I had him on the show multiple times, we even ran ads on his behalf in that race. Why? Cuz he didn't take corporate PAC money. Now it turns out, hey, you know what, you can not take corporate PAC money and find ways for executives to funnel you the money anyway, as he did with the fossil fuel industry. And it turns out a third way came out, that's the Wall Street bankers that are supposedly on the Democratic side. And they came and backed him, and all of a sudden, O'Rourke changed his policies. And he went from Medicare for all to no Medicare for all and no single payer. And and he and all of a sudden we're talking about bringing the corporate tax rate not back to thirty five but to twenty five percent. So it looks like maybe those executive dollars had a huge impact on him. Can you not see why we would be concerned about that?
2: I I don't think he did that because he got a few bucks here and there. Most of his money is not from corporate sources. You look at the entirety of Beto's record he actually has long been kind of a you know moderate type of guy. I think he's sort of snapping back to where he was in the first place. Uh, I I think we have a tendency to look at every dollar as being inherently transactional on both sides of the coin. I think the history of Democratic presidents, I mean, it's not just isolated examples like uh, Teddy Roosevelt, but FDR and JFK and LBJ and Barack Obama, uh, I would argue show that Every dollar is not inherently transactional. Donald Trump, who was not funded by corporations going in, is doing a ton of things. Corporations right now, it's not because He's they're funded by, money, He's
0: because funded by them now. He's funded by them now. He is now. a conservative. He's funded by them now. Look, Bill, I'll leave it at this, in 1976 and 1978, the Supreme Court made two very important decisions that allowed for corporations to give, in essence, unlimited money to politicians through independent expenditures and other means. So anything pre-1976 is not pertinent to this conversation, anything after that time period have Democratic politicians largely sold out to their large donors and corporate donors. Uh, You would get an overwhelming majority of the Democratic Party and the country saying goddamn right they did. And so if you think Obama was clean, okay, and there's a good debate about that. But even if that's true, he would be the exception, definitely not the rule. So bottom line is, when you're talking about DNC making a decision to bring in uh, people to debate based on how well they do with small donors, I think that's something that progressives greatly welcome so we can move in that direction rather than the direction we've been going in where the Democratic Party has served their donors.
2: Well, uh, we'll see who gets in those debates. Uh, I, have a, I don't know about in, in this particular debate. I have a concern that they've made that threshold so low and I, by the way, you mentioned on the show, my, my reference to fringe candidates. I was not referring to Bernie Sanders I, when I when I mentioned that. I was referring to people like Andrew Yang, who is not gonna be president. I know people like him out there. And it's not, it's not terrible that Andrew Yang gets in the debate. But what if someone who is uh, more uh, divisive and hateful, uh, like, a, like a Lyndon LaRouche type or a David Duke type uh, that get games the system and gets in cuz they can beat that 65,000 threshold. And maybe even bump somebody like a Kirsten Gillibrand, who actually has, uh, people have their uh, disputes there, I'm sure, but certainly has a, a legitimate resume, to deserve to be on the stage, and might not get in because she can't meet that threshold and is not polling very well right now. Uh, so I have a concern that that threshold is, is going to be too low to get the kind of debate Democrats are going to want to have. So
0: that already happened on the Republican side. That fringe candidate's name was Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, and
2: I, I, I'm sure a lot of Republicans wish they had a rules that kept them out of the debates in the first place.
0: Well, it's not how democracy <laughs> works. And, and Andrew Yang, uh, I welcome him in the debates. And I think that would be great to have other voices rather than just professional politicians. But we've at least aired out our differences here. And Bill, I really appreciate you coming on the show to talk about it.
2: Appreciate taking the time.
0: All right. Thank you. Take care. All right, guys, a fun post game last half hour of the show is for the members, where we're gonna talk a little bit about what happened over the weekend, including my Jenks Day, where i was supposed to take the day off and have fun. Did I actually do that? And what did I do? Just fun background stuff for you guys. TYT.com slash
1: join to become a member and check that out. We'll be right back.